Hello, and welcome to the Marketing Times Analytics Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Safranis, and today I'm on with Dave Cameron. Dave, would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, Alex. Thanks for having me on. Um, I have worked in marketing analytics my entire career. Uh, I have, uh, right now, I'm working as a uh, part-time consultant and part-time professor at a few different institutions after uh, a, a long corporate career. And uh, we'll be happy to share anything about my background you want to know or, or whatever your listeners would like to hear. Yeah. So how did you get started in marketing and analytics? Well, I actually, when I was an undergrad, I, I liked math and I was a math major and, and I actually got a job with General Motors. It was an internship uh, at the time. And when I realized it, I realized the people who really, um, the, the stuff I was really interested in, I'll say, was more on that marketing side, was more on doing uh, statistical analysis around it. And, and what General Motors told me is, well, we really don't hire somebody without a master's degree. You know, big corporation, right? These are the rules. So I'm like, okay. So I went back and got a master's degree, and that's really how I got my start. Um, my first job was actually in that arena as well. And I think a lot of times your first job helps set the tone for things. I mean, if you like it, oftentimes you're going to build a career on it at least the next several years. And if you don't like it, it gives you an opportunity to switch gears. That makes sense. So tell me about the way that you kind of transitioned to a more management focused role and how was that transition for you? Hmm. I spent a lot of time as what I would call first a back office statistician and then more of a inside of teams and client facing roles where I could talk about my work and what have you, but I would still spend maybe I don't know, six to seven hours a day behind the computer screen and one to two hours a day actually in meetings with people or presenting or what have you. Um, I was really good at my job for a while. And, and then all of a sudden, um, I, I was at a company that uh, got bought out and I went to an agency called Merkel. And Merkel hired me in to actually build a team. They had two analysts at the time and they were looking for somebody with skills in that area who could uh, really build it out. And it was my first real opportunity to do that. And, and it actually went well. I went from two people to 14 in the time that I was there that reported to me. And there's a certain thing that I learned there is you help people play to their strengths. If people are playing to their strengths, they're going to do well. They like their job and the company's going to be happy as well as they'll be happy. And if I can build a big enough team where people's weaknesses don't have to play in and they can only work on things that they play to their strengths, everybody's going to be happy. And that was the big learning I got over that time. And I really worked toward that over all the time that I've managed people over the next several years. So what advice do you have for building a successful team? What background do you have with uh, building teams? I've built five or six successful teams over the last 15 to 20 years. And my first one was at Merkle in, and that was in like 2000. And so actually it's been over 20 years now that I think about it, but um, it's finding what the purpose is. First of all, what's the purpose of your team? What are all the things that need to be done? What would help the company best? And then finding people with different roles that 
don't match what I can do well. I'm already there. I can do that well. Um, it's helping to find ways that the company can succeed through a diversity of, I'll call it strengths. I'm not even going to say experience, Alex. So, what I mean by that is the first team that I built at, at Merkel, I had a guy, he was very deliberative. He, I would say, agonized over everything. Everything was perfect. So if you had something really important, say it was pharmaceutical or something, and you absolutely couldn't miss, uh, you gave it to this guy because he'd never make a mistake. On the flip side, he was the slowest on the team. So you didn't want to give him a project that had a really hard, fast deadline. Whereas I had another performer who was really good at the strategic side, and he could understand not only the data behind it and everything, but how this would help the company's strategy. And so one example there was he... Um, He'd gone in front of a uh, life insurance company and, and he told them their best prospects were age 30 to 35. And the life insurance representative cut him off and said, no, no, our best customers are age 60 up there is 65 when they start feeling the aches and pains and thinking, hey, I might not live forever. And he's like, yeah, but they also you're going to have to pay out at some point. The 30 to 35 year olds are more profitable. What's causing it is they have the first child. But that's not data you have. You do ask for the age on the application. So it's a proxy for it. And all of a sudden, the light bulb went off. And this guy was like, wow, yeah, that's great. Fantastic. And so I had a different person who thought strategically who could figure that kind of stuff out. And so when building a team, I, I look for that variety. I look to see what's needed and what are people's innate strengths up front. Because the experience is nice, but you can always build the experience. The most important thing is to say, how do they naturally think? What are their strengths in that area, and how do I fill that? As a practitioner, what are some ways that you can self? Uh, can can what are some ways that you can understand your own values that you're bringing to the team and see if you balance out? Is, is there anything that from the practitioner side you would recommend? Um, there's a tool that's helpful. It's called the Clifton Strengths Finder. Uh, it was actually introduced to me at Merkel. Uh, the CEO first had his direct reports take it, and, and I was one level down from the direct reports. And most of them liked it so much that uh, they ended up asking us to take it as well. And, you know, Alex, I thought it was one of these, oh, it's a human resources tool. I'm going to have to take this thing. It's just another one of those things. You've ever worked for a big company. You know, you have these things sometimes or even a small company and, and what have you. But it really resonated because what it does is it was developed over years of testing and, and hundreds of thousands of people. And it comes up with 34 strengths. And I'll, I can give some examples. But. It tells you your top five in order, but it doesn't tell you your weaknesses. And it's that same theory I just talked about. There's so many jobs out there. There's so many roles. Find one that you can play to your strengths. So I use it as a shortcut when I'm looking to find people before I really know them well. And I start to know what their strengths are. But you asked about the, their person themselves. It could be a great guide for them. When I actually uh, left Merkel in, in 2004 and went to Nielsen in 2005, I put a nationwide job search out there and I actually went back to this and, and I looked at mine and, and my top strength is actually something called Maximizer. And Maximizer says you're not interested in turning something mediocre into something good. 
you want to take something that's already good and make it the maximum, make it great, make it the best possible. And that really resonated. And my second one was actually context. So I needed to understand the context of the situation in order to really shine. And that made sense because as a marketing analyst and as a marketing leader, you want to understand why are we marketing? What does the customer look like? What are we trying to accomplish? And not just plug, plunge in and look at the data without understanding that, right? So it's things like that. So, you know, I don't mean to like be a show for the Clifton Strengths Finder, but I made everybody take it who reported to me. And uh, actually, both of my, I'll call them kids, uh, they're 26 and 20 years old, respectively. Both took it on their own. Uh, they, they were curious and trying to find their way in the business world. So, Yeah, that's interesting. And, and earlier you said to play to your strengths. Um, of course, there's going to be some some skills that every, you know everybody lacks that they might want to improve. So how do you recommend balancing getting uh, to proficiency for some skills versus what to double down on? Yeah, that's a good question. I think the difference is it's skills versus strengths. So skills as a, for instance, when I, um, when my days at Nielsen ended five years ago, uh, and I needed to go back to being hands-on, I had to teach myself Python, for instance. I mean, I, you know, we had all the tools built in and, you know, I was in a senior leadership position and it wasn't something I knew how to do. So it was a skill I could do, but it wasn't like a weakness. I mean, I knew how to code. I knew how to analyze things. I knew my way around Excel and some earlier programming languages so I could just pick it up. I think what I'm getting at more is, uh, let's say you're a real introvert and that's just the way you're wired. And, and you can sit behind a computer screen for eight hours a day and basically be a hermit and be happy with that. I'm never gonna ask you to present in front of a client. It just doesn't fit your strengths. What I am going to ask you to do is say, well, you better be working on that analysis and turn out the best analysis you can and give it to somebody who is good at presenting and is good at piecing it all together. So, so that's where I would say you can build up the skills, but you don't want to do something that's totally incompatible with your natural makeup, if that makes sense. So you mentioned that you teach at universities what, where do you teach? What do you teach? Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So when I was younger, when I, early on, I taught at a local community college uh, here in the Chicago area. And I basically did it because my wife and I were trying to save for a house and I was like a, yeah, just a little bit beyond an entry level analyst and she wasn't making much money. So I took it on to make some extra money and I actually liked it. I did it for a while. And so fast forward, um, to uh, yeah, when my kids were grown. It, my youngest one was about 17 at the time. And I got reached out to by Lake Forest Graduate School of Management. And they said, hey, Dave, uh, we like your background because you have led global statistical teams. You've led global segmentation teams. You understand business, but you also understand the technical behind that. And in our MBA program, that's what we're looking for. So they brought me in. It, it went well. I, I really felt like I was giving back. I mean, here you're talking to a guy who's got 30 years experience and I've done a lot of stuff. And there's been a lot of people who've helped me throughout my career. And this is my way of saying, sure, great. I'll help as well. And at the time I was working, doing some work for a startup and, and they ran into some troubles. And, and literally the day I got let go by the startup, Aurora University sent me an email asking if I could apply to teach marketing analytics there. 
So guess how that turned out, right? I'm now teaching marketing analytics at Aurora University. Um, and then a month later, University of Chicago reached out to me. And this just kept coming. And, and I actually told the University of Chicago, no. I mean, here's one of the most prestigious universities in the world. And I tell them no. Well, why did I tell them no? Uh, I didn't want to go to Hyde Park. We were, you know, COVID had started. It's a long commute for me where the main campus is and everything. And I was already doing two of these and doing some consulting work. Uh, but they were persistent. And so I said, you know, this is a really great opportunity. And they said, well, you can actually do it remotely. Just come downtown to our business school and you can record the videos professionally and we'll, you know, have you do it from the comfort of your home afterwards so that turned the tide and i was really excited about it after that i mean i, I was always excited about teaching at university of chicago it's just i didn't want to have to deal with the commute when i've already got a busy schedule so all of these just came together and and it's really going well and, and in my sense it's because i think a lot of times like well, let's play out aurora university i taught a undergrad class in marketing research that just ended last month and they were all graduating seniors. And usually they have professors that are full-time, they're tenured, they know the field inside and out. But now think about it, Alex, these are graduating seniors. What do they really want? They wanna know how people are gonna use marketing research on the job in the real world. And I could provide that. And I brought in guest speakers as well. And it, it went great. I, I felt like I'm helping these people who've already studied marketing for four years. They're graduating seniors. And what I'm telling them is, is just how it gets used, what to look for in a job, what type of skills people look for. And, and again, it just feels like giving back. So I, I'm at a point in my career where I want to keep consulting. I want to keep current, uh, but I also teaching is a major passion for me. And so I kind of split my time about 50-50 between the two. And do you mentor a lot being a teacher? I would say a lot. When people reach out to me, I do, and I try to help out. Um, so it's there, but it's not really a lot. I have several people that I keep in touch with that I've taught who, you know, have gone to their first job and will bounce advice off me and that sort of thing. If, if that serves as mentoring at this point when they're no longer students, I do that. But uh, But that's probably about it. Yeah. And how was that transition from presumably a mentee to a mentor? <laughs> it was, uh, it, it had its challenges initially because I had to think back to what it was like to be in that situation because, you know, in some cases I'd say, oh, well, I know how to do this. I've been doing it for years and so on and so forth. And then realize, well, wait a minute, Think about how I was when I was 21 years old or 22 and a senior in university. Uh, yeah, I didn't know any of this stuff. And so a lot of it's, it's really helping people back to that context skill. It's helping people to think about the context because, as you know, in school, you get these prepackaged case studies or something where there is a right answer. And, and oftentimes you get in and you say, oh, I've got to figure out attribution. Uh, gee, I've never run into that in school. Uh, and oh, by the way, the data is really dirty. And mm. and so it's more things like that to realize, yeah, those are things I just take for granted, right? And, and you probably do too with your, your experience. But when you're right out of school, you don't realize, oh, wait a minute, uh, there's some quirks to this data. So on on that note, what are some of the different marketing models that you've used in your career? And what's the general purpose of them? So for example, me, media mix modeling or multi-touch attribution? 
Yeah, and mine hasn't been so much in that arena. I've done a lot around um, direct marketing where it's, you know, it's not generally true for attribution, but it's assumed that, oh, I sent out the direct marketing piece with whatever way I sent it. And, you know, that the people who run the marketing say, oh, well, most of the attribution should go to that direct marketing piece because we sent it out and a couple of days later uh, or the day later or whatever, all of a sudden there was a purchase. And, you know, in reality, maybe that was the final catalyst and there's less of the whole attribution modeling, but it's been more and more in that arena. And there's been a lot of work in trying to I would say I, I led global segmentation at Nielsen for three and a half years. It's segmenting your audience based on the drivers of purchase. Um, and let's take an example. Let's say you're Ford Motor Company and you have four types of vehicles you're going to sell. It might be a Ford car, regular car, uh, might be an upscale or Lincoln. It might be an SUV or it might be a pickup truck. I would, seg I would find ways to segment the audience and say, how do you reach them? And it's all through modeling, right? So if you look and you can say, oh, well, 70% of the time, people who watch ESPN are more likely to be pickup drivers and buy the pickup. Uh, Hulu, it might be SUVs. Uh, but it's not that simple, right? If it was that simple, you wouldn't need someone to go in and analyze all the data in the previous campaign. So a lot of the work has been around that marketing optimization where you decide, okay, I have to segment the audiences. Then I have to figure out where do I reach them best and then recognize that uh, going back to the automobile example, they're not buying online. They're going to search online. Do they go to your website because conversion is actually at the dealership? So then how do you get from did they visit the website to conversion? So a lot of it has been in that area and then along with predicting likelihood to purchase within there. That's interesting. And when you're segmenting audiences, I think, let me know if this is correct, that typically behavioral data is more predictive than demographic data. Is that right? Right. And, and a lot of this, as you know, there's a lot of third party providers out there that have demographic data, which is great for supplementation, but it's not going to be it might be 10, 15% of the predictive power, whereas the behavior will be the other 85 to 90%. So it's where do you get all those data from? Clearly, if you have first party data, it's going to be easiest um, and cleanest. But, you know, an example is, do you know what the largest predictor of somebody buying an SUV is? Um, married? Married? Uh, close, having their first child. Okay. And buying a minivan is having your third child. And <laughs> so it's things like that, that those are the most important things in the model. And you have to know that, right? It's a behavioral thing. Uh, on the flip side, I um, had a client once called the Sons of Italy. And what they did was they helped Italian immigrants when they came to the U.S. So they were looking for donors who would donate to their cause. In that case, the most predictive variable was whether you were of Italian descent or not. So every so often demographics will be the most important, but it has to be a niche thing like that where, oh, well, that's because the purpose is to help Italian immigrants. So if you're an Italian yourself or Italian heritage, that's going to be the biggest predictor. So, so those do come up. And that's why I said there's a percentage of the time it's really helpful, but not all the time. 
So when you're building a regression model, you, it's telling you what the most predictive factors are that feed into or that make up a dependent variable, uh, whether it be you know people who convert or something, the, tar- the business target. How does that get socialized across the business or does it get socialized so that people can learn what are the drivers of purchases or does it just kind of stay in the model usually um, where people don't learn from it as much? Well, I prefer to socialize it because then you can build your creative around it and you can find the right websites around it and what have you. So if you play out the example of buying the SUV that you had a child, then you can start going to websites where, you know, people with babies would go and things like that. So it would really help from that perspective. So for me, I've been fortunate enough that uh, when I was in the segmentation role, I had a vice president title, so I got people's attention and, you know, I could throw the title around in reality, but I would share what, um, through a PowerPoint presentation, basically, I'd, I'd share, here are the things that are most descriptive of your customers, and here are the things that are least descriptive of your customers. So, for instance, age was the least descriptive. People 65 to 80 years old don't buy an SUV, right? So, this way, they they get a persona right in a way that tells you here's here's what the persona looks like but also here's what it doesn't look like so you know things to stay away from that's a great idea so using those behavioral indicators of your target market to create a campaign that appeals to that profile right and even with the segmentation if i did this for the ford car situation where you have four different vehicles you need to make sure that you're in tune with what resonates with your target audience and recognize there's really four separate target audiences and sometimes the segments might overlap right it might be that oh my wife is going to buy the suv but i'm going to buy the lincoln and and that's possible as well so you need to it's, it's back to like individual targeting versus household targeting. It starts to blur for things like automobiles because it's a household decision, but there's going to be a primary driver. So even there, you have to think about, okay, I've got these segments, I've got the persona, but sometimes there may be a secondary decision maker too, which makes things harder. Yeah, would you say that we're still quite far from total marketing attribution of what's going on with the purchasing decision? I think we are. I I think this is why it's a great field for people to go into. It's exciting because so much reliance has been on third party data and heavily on demographics and what have you. And uh, the last full-time position I had was actually retargeting using direct mail. So the idea was you already had first party data, you, you know, you, the, you went to the website and so they knew who you were because you went to the website and everything. And based on what you did online, they put together a behavioral profile for you and would target and, and would get great return on ad spend. I mean, three to four times what you get through just a blanket email type of thing. And, it's because they actually took the time to take everybody and analyze what did they do on the website? What did they do subsequently? Let's let's track all of everything they've done with us and set up a marketing database. And, you know, their competitors were so focused on, oh, yeah, but we can get this third party data really quickly and overlay it and everything. And it was really more time consuming. It, it, you know, a lot of these companies, they have these marketing systems that don't talk to the purchasing system, that don't talk to the uh, fulfillment 
area. And so unless you have some sort of software or some sort of architecture that puts all these together, it, it's oftentimes hard to get at that all, where it's easier for the marketer to go out and say, oh, I'll just get an overlay from one of these third party providers and, and off I go. And, and, and it looks good uh, if you go back with what they tell you. Um, but in reality, I think first party data is in, in partnerships with others is, is definitely the future and it's still a, a wide open field, great opportunity for people. I agree. There's so much coming in the future for marketing attribution and data environments. It's We're just hitting our stride, I think, with web-based tools. Maybe we're not even there yet. Um, a lot of the web-based tools I've used have been quite slow still. So I think there is still a lot of room for innovation and growth in the marketing analytics space. Let me ask about some new and upcoming approaches to marketing to individuals. So you touched on Email and direct mail, these are forms of direct marketing when you're contacting a specific person and you have the ability to personalize to that level if, if you need to. Um, what are some new or you know new ways that people are marketing to individuals? Well, I think there's a, uh, take the direct mail example. Direct mail's been around for I don't know how long, since long before I started working in this field. And I think there's a new twist to it in that I'm not really sure how direct mail works these days. I know how it worked when I was at Merkle. We would find prospects and we would have all these different data sources and, and put it together and build models to predict who would respond to direct mail. But there wasn't a digital component to it. And as I mentioned, the last company that I did some work for when I was doing full-time employment was doing retargeting through direct mail. So instead of retargeting by following you around with a display ad or a banner ad or what have you, they would actually send out a direct mail piece and they would get considerably more sales based on that tactic. And let me give you an example in my own personal life. So my son is 20 years old and three years ago, he was looking to go to college, looking to figure out where he wanted to go. And I went over and I looked at his Gmail one day and I, I'm like, dude, you've got 6,000 unread emails in your inbox. And he's like, yeah, those are all from colleges and so on and so forth. But there were about a dozen of them that sent him a full color brochure in direct mail, showed up on our doorstep and he'd sit down at dinner and he'd pick one of these up and he'd look through it and say, hmm, yeah, interesting. And he actually went to one of those. And so the emails went totally unread. And okay, sure, it costs more to send a full color brochure. But when you think about how many people never even read these emails, and emails usually a pretty efficient way of doing things, but when you've got 6,000 of them and there's only a handful that are selling, sending you these brochures, well, it's a great opportunity for the right marketing application, right? Now, this isn't when you've already signed up and, and you've agreed you're going to be part of the email. It's more like you put your name out there and you're a prospect and you're looking for somebody. Cruise lines could be another example, right? You're looking to take a cruise. We're coming out of COVID. Yeah, you haven't taken a cruise before. Don't know a whole lot about it. Just kind of put your name out there in general. Well, pretty soon you're probably going to get a lot of emails that you're not going to really read, but a handful may send you these color brochures. You look through it, you see what the boat's like, and then you go to the website. So I think that's actually making a comeback direct mail only in the sense that there's a third party part to it. But the main thing is still, oh, but they bounced around a little bit. They've looked at different areas. We know they're interested in this 
vertical, whether it's a college or whether it's a cruise line or whatever it is. And it's a good way to capitalize on it. That makes sense. It's it's almost like the less popular direct mail becomes among companies, the more it stands out and matters for the companies that do still use it. Um, besides that, I just think it's ever growing in terms of how data are used to set up marketing campaigns, find the audiences, what have you. Another example is smart TVs these days. I assume you have a smart TV, right, Alex? Yeah. And most everybody does these days. And since it's connected to the internet, um, I learned that if you go ahead and sometimes you log in, they ask you who's watching some of these. If you do that, you've opened it up to opt into them. Even if you don't, they at least get a record, the, the original equipment manufacturer, like the maker of the TV, like Samsung or Vizio or LG, can pick up what the tv is tuned to they don't know who you are but they can say oh x percent of our tvs are watching this or x percent of our tvs are watching that and here's what the mix is and bringing that into the data seems like a big opportunity I, I think there's so much growing there there's so much more marketing spend going into tv now it used to be oh we have to buy it up front it has to be incremental it gets bought long before the campaign's actually going to run now that it's internet enabled you can get real-time feedback like you can just through your computer or what have you. And people haven't really built models around this. The, the TV industry, I mean, I said I worked for Nielsen. The TV industry is still figuring this out. Uh, the advertisers are trying to figure out how do I leverage TV, and, and it's measurable through smart TV. You don't – you're you, as, as you know, a lot of it is brand building, right? It's not necessarily direct-to-consumer purchase or what have you, but you can get a feedback loop off TV that – you wouldn't get before because with the direct internet connection, you start getting digital data. That's making me think of the recent Twitter controversy for how many impressions were real versus from robots. And it was specifically around awareness campaigns because that that's something where there's very little accountability where you're just telling a company that a bunch of people saw your tweet, but they're not saying who saw it or how many people went on to purchase. And it seems like from what you're describing with TV, it would be also a lot of brand uh, awareness advertising, but with a layer of um, of trust in in um, in the sense that it you know there's probably multiple TV vendors that you'd be working with or something like that where. Hopefully, it would be easier to tell who's actually watching it. It would be harder, in other words, to fake TV watching numbers, I feel like. Yeah, and that's a good point. And it's come up because in the TV advertising space, there have been advertisers who've asked about fraud, as, as you mentioned, with the bots and everything. And it just hasn't come up in TV. I mean, it's not like people are writing programs to and you need CAPTCHAs and that sort of thing as you do. Uh, going through you know, normal digital. I think what's happening in TV is they're recognizing that, uh, first of all, um, visibility is high, right? If, some, if somebody's running an ad on your TV, you're very likely to see it unless you wander to the refrigerator and get a drink or something, right? It's not like you have to worry about, oh, did somebody see this on my screen or what have you? And unlike a lot of places where you can just X out or skip ad or that sort of thing, um, 
you can't do that on the TV. It's it's usually, I mean, it's running. And so, you know, maybe sometimes there's times they'll give you an option with the clicker to skip ad, but most of the times you're, you just end up watching it. And so uh, people are trying to figure out the agency world. They're trying to figure out how do I get more targeted here? How do I build this into my media mix? And TV is not part of the media mix for attribution right now in most places because it's looked at as old style linear TV where, yeah, okay, that's nice. It was up front. It's brand building. But now that it's real time and you can adjust campaigns in real time, uh, this is a lot of where I see the industry going in terms of your question about attribution is figuring it out. I, I agree. That's It's a very interesting area. And it comes with some privacy concerns as well. And I want to ask about a uh, California Privacy Act that we had discussed in our previous conversation. Do you want to give a little bit of, of, a, of an explanation of what that is and kind of this new trend in the privacy world? Yeah, so California often, as you know, leads the way in privacy. They're very concerned about the all of us as the end consumer and what have you and they're not turning off things they're doing things like saying oh okay it, it's sort of like when you log into a site now and say uh this site accept, does cookies do you accept yes or no and it'll just annoyingly be there until you do something um what california is doing is saying that if you're going to do this, you need to let people know what's happening and you need to let people know why you're doing it. I don't know a whole lot of details. I'm not a lawyer and, and it's still being discussed. But my understanding is that it's just really taking it to the next stage and saying, you know, we don't want to bury this in 300 pages of fine print. Just let people know we're capturing this data for advertising purposes or what have you. And if they do that and people realize it, I think most people realize now, okay, uh, with advertising, that'll make the advertising more specific to me. And, and anybody who's ever like cleaned out their cookies recognizes that, right? Like I've cleaned out my cookies and it's like, oh my gosh, the ads I get are totally irrelevant. But after I let them pile up for a while, then I start getting relevant ads. I imagine a lot of people have been through that and will, and it's really going to, in the long run, help our industry because there will be more people saying, okay, I accept this. And then there's, there's not the privacy thing to deal with, but, it, but it's early stages and I, I'm just speculating and, and I certainly don't want to, you know, talk for how the legal aspects would work, but that's my understanding from a high level. That makes sense. And it makes me think about the, the, transition to first party data that a lot of companies are building towards. Do you have any advice for companies that are thinking about transitioning from buying data to using their own data and um, how they can do that? I think it's really around building something beyond the marketing information system. It's building a system that enables you to take all these disparate data sources and have a tool that enables you to get your insights, make your marketing predictions, build your segments without having to have access to PII if it's not, if, if you're not able to do that internally. 
And I know there are companies that are building tools enabling them to do this and what have you, but most places I know aren't there yet. Most places I know have a separate marketing information system versus a separate fulfillment system versus a separate customer system. And when you try to get these to talk to each other, they've got a variety of different IDs and you have to be careful with what's shared and, and that sort of thing. And so really building that out, uh, I know some companies that really do it well and, and do it right, but I know some others where it ends up being 2,000 lines of coding in SQL in order to get that information out, which a marketer generally isn't going to do, right? You, you, when I first started in this field, people asked me if I knew SQL, and I'm like, uh, no. And it was like, guess what? You're going to learn it. And so that's still there. But I think there's enough automated tools out there where that's going to become, whereas it's important now, it, it hopefully can become less and less so. Right. And then you can use that integrated data from all the different parts of the business uh, to build new campaigns and make information relative to customers. Right. And then for prospecting, then you're still going to need to get some data somehow through third parties. And, but oftentimes, second party can help. You can do some sort of partnership with somebody where if you can keep something privacy compliant, you can work with them to say, Let's say I am a Washington Post subscriber and yeah, Washington Post knows this, of course, because I subscribe. They know what ads I've seen and that sort of thing. And they keep track of it. And all of a sudden I go out and buy a BMW. Now, BMW has me on their database. Well, what if they partnered together and, and did something there? Then they could find something out about me that says, oh, okay, not only am I a Washington Post reader, but I'm upscale enough to afford a BMW. And from that, uh, they could start providing the advertising through, if the Washington Post makes money through advertising, they could start selling me not my name specifically, but selling me as part of a broader audience and say, hey, this is somebody who, uh, it fits the mindset and profile of a more affluent person with stuff that we know. They, they can't necessarily tell them, oh, it's a BMW, stuff that we know. And, it, and maybe they can, depending on the agreement, but I'm not going to take that for granted. And then start offering me things similarly, like I'll go back to the cruise line example. Maybe somebody who reads the Washington Post, if they buy a BMW, they find they're much more likely to buy a cruise line than not, and they can target the advertising better. Makes sense. So I want to go back to what we were talking about in the beginning uh, regarding your education in school and how that has helped you in your career. So in other words, you know, the kind of common question of, you know, did, did what you learned in school really help you in real life and how, how have you learned over your career? I think it has helped me in the sense that I ended up going for a master's of applied statistics. Um, but I got that through the internship when I realized, as I said earlier, that I was working for General Motors and the people who had the most fun were the marketing analysts. But in those days, you needed a, a master's in statistics. We didn't have all the tools. You had to be able to write code in C or Fortran or something. And you needed to be able to get underneath and code the algorithms because you didn't have machine learning things like R and Python that you could do it and what have you. So for me, it helped and it helped set that background because I needed to understand what you could and couldn't do with it. And it helped me many years later. I got put in front of a company where as a consultant recently, 
where they said, look, we'll pay you if you can beat our existing model. We'll test yours and we'll run this in the marketplace and we'll do kind of, uh, and if you call it an A-B test or what, it, what you have, you, I mean, their model was the champion, right? I was the challenger. And I beat them by 8% in terms of the revenue that they brought in from the campaign. And they were stunned that like, we have this great machine learning model. How did you beat it? And I said, well, I looked at your webpage. I went through all the stuff that I thought was appropriate for your customers. And I created some composite variables based on that, that I've seen work in the past. And I don't think that would have come to me had I not, I mean, yeah, a lot of it, Alex's experience, but I don't think it would have come to me if I hadn't understood the underlying way that models work, that if you could take a few things in combination and build a more predictive variable that you might get there. And an example was um, many years ago when I was at Merkle, we had a client that uh, we were going against uh, a champion out there, if you will, a big company that was selling lawn care services. And what they were doing were they were targeting people near somebody else who had it. So think of that. I mean, you have a beautiful green lawn and your next door neighbor doesn't. So your next door neighbor is a great target because they're going to see you've got this beautiful green lawn. So they did that, but they also put in income into there and said, well, you got to make enough to afford this lawn care service. Well, I simply replaced income with net worth. And I thought people in expensive houses, because their net worth, they're going to want a more a lawn that would be better. And I didn't beat them in terms of response rate, but I blew them away in terms of revenue because my net worth people were willing to spend four times as much per year as the income people were. And that made a whole lot of sense when you thought about it. Um, but part of that was just the educational background and then using my experience on top of it to say, yeah, but nobody's selling net worth. They're selling income. How do I build net worth out of that? Well, if they bought a house, it's public domain. It's public record. I can see what the house is. I can go to a site like Zillow and I can get their estimate of what the house is worth. And I can kind of build a net worth estimate from all of that. And that just helped out the campaign better. So talking about the agency experience that you have, can you explain the general business model of an agency and some examples of service offerings? Yeah, I recognize that I worked for Merkle for almost five years and it was in the early stages and, and Merkle is a very successful company. They are within the Dentsu Aegis holding company organization right now. They have a product that's called M1 that I helped start and what have you, but we were in the early stages at that point, yet it still holds, you need to be client focused, right? At the end of the day, it's about creating value for the client. And what do you have to offer that they can't do on their own? And so I mentioned TV as an example, is the agencies are working quite hard now to figure out how do I use smart TV data as part of the media mix when a lot of buyers are still looking at as well, we got the standalone, we got the separate department, uh, but it's not going to stay that way. And so there's a, what's what's different, I think, is you need creative thinking inside an agency as well as analytical skills. And that's kind of a rare combination in a way because a lot of times analytical skills are great. We're doing the model. We get the best possible predictive model, but they're not necessarily creative about how you would use it and what the applications would be. And if an agency doesn't make money for their clients, they don't succeed in that arena. And at Merkle, one of the best things we did, my, my group's revenue actually went up tenfold over the four and a half years I was there. 
because we built out those predictive models that I talked about, we found new sources of data. We went from saying, oh, you're going to select based on income and proximity to a customer for lawn care, and we're going to switch you to net worth. Well, how do I get to net worth? Well, I don't have net worth. I have to build a predictive model to estimate net worth based on what can I find on Zillow? What can I find? Oh, did, did they have a car and it's in one of the states where I can see what kind of car they drive? Oh, they drive a Maserati. Guess what? Higher net worth. Things like that. And you just have to constantly be thinking and innovating and what have you, if that makes sense. So then how does how does the company sell that then to a, com- to a company that maybe could hire the same role internally. What's the value proposition there? It's having seen it across a number of different clients from the agency perspective. So I actually started my direct marketing career at the local telephone company here in the Chicago area. In, and uh, I knew that industry inside and out. And I could tell you, I could understand our data very well. But I'd only seen what had worked for that company in that in industry. I hadn't seen what had worked across a variety of companies. And that's actually why I went to Merkel in 2000, was I wanted to get that experience. And so literally, I worked with over 100 different clients in, in several different industries and learned what worked and what didn't work in a variety of different verticals. And it's so funny, Alex, when I left Merkel, people asked me, well, what vertical did you specialize in? And I'm like, I didn't. Like, well, why should we hire you? And it's like, well, because I don't want to say I've seen it all, but I've seen so much more variety than anybody who was focused on one vertical. And that's what they would go to. But really, it needs to be a good partnership, because when you end up in that, you get a lot of breadth, right? You get a lot of breadth across a variety of industries, a variety of verticals. What you don't necessarily get is the depth of the data. So when I worked what I call client side for the phone company, I knew the data inside and out. I knew the ROI in every campaign. I knew how deep to go. I knew what the incremental targets were and everything. I had access to the finances that I didn't when I was at Merkle. That's very interesting. And um, thank you for explaining that. I think, you know, agencies are such a big part of the marketing world. I think that's a great thing to, to talk about. Yeah, and one thing I believe is that you talked a little bit about consulting, um, and I don't want to do it as a blanket statement for everyone, but I actually like the order I went in where I said, I'm going to work someplace first and get a few years in, and then I'm going to switch to a Merkle. And part of that was I could go in as a management level, but part of it was that when I was 24 years old, I didn't know what I was talking about. I couldn't go in as a consultant. I would have had to reach out to other people in the organization, crack them down, whereas now that I've got 30 years experience, I can just do it on my own. I mean, people are like, well, why would you put out your own shingle? Why didn't you go to one of these places? It's like, I don't need to. Uh, I have enough contacts out there. I have enough know-how that, that I got to that. But I wouldn't want to start there. I wanted to start by getting in deep, going to a bigger company where there were a lot of people that I could learn from and and really understand the ins and outs of it and get that depth. Um, that's the order I wanted to go. And then I, I know a lot of people have done that and then moved into like consulting or an agency afterwards. I think it depends on the person. But I've seen it be more successful than that, where you gain some experience, you gain some value, you get enough for you. I think know what you're talking about. And then you move into that agency or consulting role and, and, and build it out across a broader variety of companies. Um, so that, that's my opinion for what it's worth. And that's my experience. And I'm sure you could talk to people who got it the other way. But that's 
it, it's just been a big success factor for me. So speaking about your career, what were your original career aspirations and how did they change over time? Um, not sure I had that many career aspirations. It's funny, when I started, I just got married. So my focus was on my marriage. But after the, a little bit after that, um, I wanted to get more analytical. Uh, you know, I went in, I had the degree in statistics and I was working in like the marketing analytics field. And you see a lot of things like, oh, here's our standard reports, like you get off Google Analytics. And for me, it was like, well, but I want to do predictive stuff. Yeah, I, I have a degree in statistics. I want to be able to just more than describe what happened and be able to say what worked, what didn't work. I want to take it from that descriptive area and, and take it and be more predictive. And so uh, I, I moved in that direction. And that's when I, I, I started leading teams that would build predictive models to say, okay, let's put people into segments. Let's let's segment our audience. Let's predict what's going to happen afterwards. And I knew I wanted to do it, maybe not early on. I didn't know what I wanted to do early on, but I recognized maybe two years in after doing a lot of just straight marketing analytics, you know, using the tools of the day, that I wanted to take it to the next level. And it, it moved in that direction, and it's funny. If you ever take one of these interest tests, like I actually took the ACT when I was in high school, and along with it, they had a thing that was, oh, it's a career advice type of thing. You answer all these questions, and it tells you the top fields that most fit the way you answer the questions. And the only reason I even looked at it is because when my older child took it in high school, I said, oh, I still got it. I'm a pack rat. I still got it in a folder from high school stuff. I'm going to look. And my top three in order were mathematics, marketing, and management. And I just started laughing because at that time, I'm 40 years old. I'm like, uh, I got a management role. I'm doing mathematical work for marketing purposes. And I had no idea. I hadn't remembered it. So um, similar question, but more about the maybe an audience member who's curious about this. What's your perspective on the value of an MBA right now? Um, and what would you recommend somebody get one? And for what kind of role would it be most beneficial? Um, I'm biased because I teach MBA classes at a couple of different organizations right now. I'll try to take that bias off a little bit. I think it depends on what you want to do with it. If you want to become a top data science person, you probably don't need it because you can pick up so much through university background, through the online stuff that's available and what have you. Where I think it comes in handy is if you want a, if you want to do something that is technical, but the focus is more business oriented, right? So if you ask me if I considered myself a marketer first and a statistician or an analyst second or vice versa, I'm not sure I can answer that because they were both equally important. And if you answer the question that way, I think there's a lot of value in getting the MBA because the MBA focuses on case studies. The undergrad classes that I've seen are often focusing around, we're gonna feed you information, we're going to have you work through some of this stuff. And when you get out, you're going to have the basics and what have you. Um, and, and some will do some case studies, but not to the level of an MBA where the focus is, is around the business applications. You're going to go in depth and see what other companies have done and what they haven't done and do simulations. And there are organizations out there like the Harvard Business Review that makes these simulations available to universities where you can try it yourself. Uh, I, I do one for at Lake Forest, the Graduate School of Management, where 
they are a product manager for a laundry detergent firm and they're trying to increase their profit and increase their market share both which as you know is hard but they've got the budget to do it and so you run through a simulation of a, ver a variety of different tactics that are based on what actually happened in the real world and for me that's where the value of the MBA comes in because you get to see how that actually works and you, you get to understand those applications better. So I think it depends on really what somebody wants to do with it and, you know, how kind of how fortunate you are, maybe what you can get for your first job too. That makes sense. I appreciate you trying to take your bias out of that. I, I know that, that must be hard. <laughs> Yeah, if you want to come and take an MBA from any of my programs, I'd be happy to take you. But, uh, but <laughs> yeah, I've got students who are 22 years old and flowed right in. I've got others who are 28 and said, hey, my problem was I was like a back office analyst for five years and I've never gotten out of that. And I really want to take more of a leadership role. And you know, if I'm with a big company, the only way that's going to happen is with an MBA. And, and maybe some of that's big company versus small company, too. I mean, uh, I've worked for both. And the big companies seem to say we've got so many people that we're going to require it more. I don't know if that's going to change or not. It, it's changing. Like I, I'm seeing like data engineers hired without a degree these days, which I never saw before, but you can do so much with open source and so much online in that area. And you don't need the business expertise. If you're a data engineer with an entry level job, you do, if you're a senior data engineer, but you don't, if you're entry level that they're hiring people that are 20 years old that just, know the way around this that have, you know, worked their way through. So there's definitely, it's always changing. Yeah. And speaking of kind of being, what is the best fit for each person in terms of your career, which roles that you've taken on have been the best fit for your personality type and what is the optimal personality type for the roles that you've taken? So maybe, something for your teaching role, something for the management role in marketing, et cetera? I think it sometimes varies throughout time. The first role I had out of college, I was lucky. I was a back office analyst, but I needed to learn it. I needed to learn the business. I needed to learn the um, how to program, which I had no idea how to do um, and all that, because you don't really get those when you take marketing classes, but when you realize, oh, if I'm going to really work with the data, this was before you know, Power BI and those type of things and Tableau and what have you, I got to figure it all out myself, right? And so it was a good role for me at that point because I wasn't ready to be in front of somebody. Um, my most rewarding role was actually any of these times I built a team. I mentioned earlier, I built teams five or six different times, um, starting with Merkle. And then I just, I spent 12 years at Nielsen and I kept moving positions to new areas as they came available and opportunities came. So I, I grew one called the Statistical Center of Innovation and another one called, um, you know, the Segmentation Arena. And, and segmentation was already there. I was just helping to reconsolidate and, and, and build out a little bit. But what I liked was, if I go back to the Statistical Center of Innovation, is I liked it because it was innovation. It wasn't business as usual. Uh, just generating client deliverables is not my sweet spot. It's really figuring out how do we take it to the next level? How do we predict? How do we make it better? And I had three people. I had one who was an all the dissertation statistician who, who was that hermit I talked about. He could sit behind his computer screen, never talk to a soul and be really happy. I had another one, our, our primary vertical was consumer packaged goods or CPG. And 
she, uh, or I'm sorry, he was a 30 year veteran there. So he just, and a psychology background. So he just understood consumer insights and motivation and what have you. And the third one was a sociologist who just got stuff done through people. And for me, it was a, a real joy bringing people with different strengths together who saw the world differently. I mean, all three was totally different the way they looked at it. Uh, you know, they wouldn't, they, it took a while to catch each other's viewpoint and what have you, but this gave me that variety and, and I really liked building that out. And I think why the story helps is because it also helped them. You know, the Alma dissertation statistician is now a senior manager at Pepsi. Uh, he's got a great team over there. He's done very well because he's been able to leverage all that modeling expertise. The 30-year veteran is now retired, but he told me that I was a great manager for him and just rewarding for that. And he was more of a help to me because he was a 30-year veteran. And the third person is now senior vice president at Nielsen and has been promoted five times since she worked for me. And so again, it's finding those right roles and finding where you play best and where you really enjoy. And so for me, the team building one has really been the best. And I think at the risk of talking too much, the professor thing follows as a natural suit because I like helping people find their niche. And so as a professor, that's some of what I'm doing. I'm teaching, but I'm also helping people think about well, where do you fit? What do you like? What can you do well? Cool. I, I think this is a great stopping point. I really want to thank you, Dave, for coming on. This has been such a great conversation. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you asked some good questions and you probably drew more out of me than I would have thought with anybody else. So uh, you do a great <laughs> job at this, Alex. Thank you so much, Dave. And thank you everyone for listening. We'll talk to you soon.